All right, good morning, everyone. Let me open us in prayer. Lord God, I pray that the spirit that we will be learning about today would rest upon us, transform us more completely into the people that you've created us to be. So this is the third week of our series here in 2 Corinthians, um, specifically 2 Corinthians 2, 14, all the way to 7, 4. And so what I've done the last couple weeks is I've essentially laid the foundation that I think is necessary to help us to understand what comes in the rest of this chunk of the letter. I think it's critical to understand the things that we've been talking about since it ungirds everything that Paul is going to say. And so as... Pete has helpfully summarized for us this morning, the first thing we talked about was this transformation in Paul's eschatology, his expectation around the last days. Whereas before Jesus, the expectation had been that the age to come was wholly future and that it would come in its fullness when it came. But then in the wake of the resurrection, the outpouring of the Spirit, it came to be understood that the age to come had come had been brought back into the present so that the present age and the age to come overlapped. We call this inaugurated eschatology because the last days had now begun. They'd been inaugurated in the resurrection and outpouring of the Spirit, but they had not yet come in their fullness. And so we've seen how the age to come is characterized first and foremost in, in many ways by resurrection and spirit, But there are many other characteristics of the age to come that are relevant, that have come about in real ways, and we're going to be talking about some of those today. We'll we'll see more examples of that as the letter goes on. The second thing which we talked about last week was how that eschatology um, affects our perception of Jesus and the life that he lived, of Paul and people that have these cross-shaped ministries. had the example of Reverend Martin Luther King that we talked about last week. And so by sort of cross-shaped or cruciform uh, ministries, what I mean is ministries that are characterized by an others-centered, self-giving orientation. We read Ephesians 5, 2, Walk in love just as Christ also loved us, it's others-centered, and gave himself up for us, it's self-giving. So this other-centered, self-giving love is contrasted with self-centered, self-assertion, or self-promotion, what Paul in some other places calls selfish ambition. And so for those who value being first, being on top, the message of the cross is foolishness. It just leads to death and defeat. But for those who believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead... The way of other-centered, self-giving love is actually the wisdom and power of God. It leads to resurrection life and participation in the age to come. And so those differing perspectives are really important for Paul's defense against charges that these figures he calls super-apostles are going to level against him. For Paul, true apostles will necessarily have that same other-centered, self-giving orientation Right? And because, because they're following Jesus. Their, their ministries will look like Jesus's. And so they'll look weak and foolish to those who are perishing, who, who kind of belong to the mindset of the age, the present evil age, which is passing away. 
And so that theme, this, this inaugurated eschatology, this others-centered orientation that followers of Jesus have, that undergirds everything that Paul is going to say in this chunk of the letter, even if it doesn't appear so at first glance. So having kind of recapped those things, it makes sense to spend a bit of time talking about these super-apostle figures um, that Paul is defending himself and his message and his form of ministry against. He uses that term super-apostles twice in the letter, in 11.5 and in 12.11. And it, it seems that these figures, these people, are behind a great deal of what Paul is saying in the letter. The most direct and sort of extended treatment of them is in chapters 10 through 12, which we won't get to in, this, in the series that I'm preaching. But I did want to look at some of the characteristics, some of the accusations that they leveled against Paul, because it helps us to understand exactly what he's defending himself against and exactly the kind of ministry that he's advocating for in this passage. So as far as the accusations go, these supervolses seem to have been either directly leveling these accusations at Paul or at least behind them in, in, in things that the Corinthians were, were saying. So they seem to have leveraged this change of plans that Paul had had to make in visiting the Corinthians to claim that Paul was insincere, that he was untrustworthy, that he went back on his word. They suggested he was manipulative, like crafty or tricky. Um, they may have accused him of exploiting or taking advantage of the Corinthians in some way, shape, or form. It seems that they suggested possibly that he didn't love the Corinthians. But by the way that they acted and the things that they said, they, they insinuated that Paul was foolish, that he was inferior, that he was timid and meek or weak, that he was unimpressive in appearance or presence, he was unskilled or contemptible as a speaker. Um, in 10.10, Paul says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech contemptible. It wasn't Paulish like they were. Another thing is that Paul had supported himself when he was ministering among the Corinthians. Rather than accepting patronage, which was a kind of cultural thing that mattered back then, and whether or not the super apostles highlighted this themselves, it seems that the fact that he had done this really offended the Corinthians. Um, commentator Paul Barnett says that culturally, the visiting rhetorician would assume a patronizing role, and the Corinthians appear to have been offended that he would not follow such conventions. He didn't do them the sort of um, dignity of accepting their patronage. There was the, the client-patron relationship was one where um, Patrons got status by um, supporting clients financially. So, the, and, and the last thing is that Paul lacked these highly esteemed letters of recommendation that the super apostles apparently carried with them. So he says in 3.1, which we'll be looking at today, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of commendation to you or from you. So if we look at the last of these kind of accusations against Paul, we see that a lot of them have to do with status, have to do with appearance, have to do with kind of ways that we consider ourselves to be better than others. So those are the accusations they level against Paul. Um, the next thing we can look at is the, the kind of descriptions that are sort of implicit about, uh, implicit of the super apostles themselves as we read through the letter. Um, it seems that they were Hebrews, Israelites, descendants of Abraham, Paul says. 
They peddled the word of God, so it was a, a source of profit for them. Their teaching was a source of profit. Paul says that they're false, they're deceitful, that they were disguised as the apostles of Christ. Now, this is probably because, as he says, they preached a, another Jesus in some way, a different gospel. And we talked about some of the chief characteristics of Paul's gospel last time. They lifted themselves up. They boasted according to the flesh, he says. Um, they, they, were, they were condescending or exploitive in some way. They, they lorded their status over the Corinthians. Paul says, you put up with it if someone makes slaves of you, if someone devours you, if someone takes from you, if someone lifts themselves up over you, if someone strikes you in the face. And so this appears to be a reference to their kind of posture towards them. Uh, they were competitive. They compared themselves with others. Paul says, we don't dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. And that commending themselves is another thing. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of commendation to you or from you? So hopefully that kind of brief overview of the kinds of things they were accusing Paul of, of the things that characterized them, will give us a sense of the conflict that Paul found himself in. Paul followed a crucified Messiah who had showed us unprecedented humility, right? Being in the form of God, he humbled himself, coming like human beings and ultimately taking even the form of a slave, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, right? So Paul sought to follow and teach the way of other-centered, self-giving love. But now, this ministry that looked like that was being challenged by people with a very different mindset. One that was competitive, one that was self-promoting, boastful, concerned with status and prestige and appearance. It was focused on the self focused on the ministers themselves. And so this put Paul in a difficult position, because on one hand, he can't allow that kind of mindset to infiltrate this congregation. He can't allow that kind of teaching to continue. But at the same time, because of the nature of his ministry, which is not about boasting in himself, he can't kind of combat them on their terms. And so he's, he's, he's caught in this, in this place that is, is, is a, there's, a, there's a tension there for him. And so the way that he does that is, hopefully will be fleshed out as we kind of read, read through this letter. But it brings us to these letters of commendation. Commentator Murray Harris describes letters of commendation as letters that were, and I'm quoting him here, given to travelers or emissaries to introduce them to persons in another town or country who could provide them with hospitality and meet their particular needs. Since the person recommended was in good standing with the recommender, and the recipient was a friend or patron of the recommender, the letters of commendation virtually committed the recipient to comply with the request expressed in the letter. So you can see how these kinds of letters would actually, especially if they were from like the right people, would carry a lot of weight, would carry a lot of status, would carry a lot of authority with them for the people who carried them. Like having a, a well-credentialed resume, essentially. And so it seems that these super apostles had their own letters of some kind, and that they were leveraging that, leveraging that against Paul and his authority in that congregation. So Paul's initial response to this challenge is to say that the Corinthians themselves are Paul's letter of commendation. 
what commends Paul is their existence as Christian churches at all. They, they existed, their existence itself owed, owed, it, owed itself to his own ministry among them. So here's what he says at the beginning of chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. So in characteristic form, Paul is drawing on his deep theological foundation to address the very specific situation that he found himself in. He's going, that, that, that inaugurated eschatology that we've been talking about is going to manifest itself in the way that he addresses this challenge from the super apostles. Now, you may have noticed his shift in metaphors in that passage that we just read. The shift from letters of commendation written in ink to tablets of stone. And that shift has everything to do with that eschatology. Paul, what Paul is doing is he's brilliantly connecting the super apostles and their form of ministry to the present evil age that's passing away. And so to see what he's doing, we kind of have to take a step back, way back. So the biblical narrative begins with the story of God creating a cosmos. The cosmos is a kind of temple. And the final step in the construction of ancient temples was the placement of the image or idol of the God in that temple. The images that God places in this cosmos temple are human beings. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so the vision for humanity can be seen in the form of four ordered relationships. You guys may have heard this talked about before. The first is our relationship with God where we love and honor him as God, we obey his commandments. The second set of relationships is our relationships with one another, that, that we cooperate and we care for one another in a harmonious way as, as fellow humans. It has to do with our relationship with creation being ordered. We, as, as humanity, are God's, um, we, we exercise God's benevolent rule over creation as his image bearers here. And finally, there's an ordered relationship with the self, which results when all, from, from all those other relationships being ordered. We don't have shame because those things are as they should be. And so the point here is just to know that these relationships are others-centered. They're outward-focused. They're oriented towards God, others' creation, and then the result of that is a healthy relationship with our own selves. But as the story goes, those four relationships are broken. Humanity was tempted with a lie that they could be like gods for themselves, independently from their relationship with God, and in disobedience to God's commands. And so that others-centered, outward orientation changed. St. Augustine, and after him, Martin Luther, 
use the term homo incurvutas in se to describe this new orientation. Humanity curved in on itself. There's a Swedish theologian named Anders Nygren, and here's what he says about this. He says, for Augustine, sin consists in the fact that man is bent down to earth. Curvatus. And Luther, too, can say that sinful man is is curvatus. But this means for Luther something quite different. It means that man is egocentric, self-centered, okay? That his will is determined always by his own interest, and so bent upon itself in curvutas, in se. In Augustine, the sinful soul is bent down to earth. In Luther, in Luther it is bent in upon itself. Okay, so even if there is a difference in emphasis between the two, in my view, those are basically two sides of the same coin. When we become bent in on ourselves, curved in on ourselves, it curves us away from God, down to earth. And so I think it's profoundly helpful to think about sin as this kind of orientation, being curved in on ourselves. And these four broken relationships are a good way to think about what's wrong with the world. Okay, this, this curved in orientation and the consequences of these four broken relationships are what we need to be saved from. Paul's language for this, Paul's language for this sinful orientation is the term flesh. Sometimes flesh can simply refer to our basic humanness, our embodied and limited existence as human beings. And it doesn't have a moral component to it. But other times, Paul uses it to describe this sinful orientation, being curved in on ourselves because it's what characterizes all human beings. So in Romans 8, he says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So in the biblical story, flesh is what's wrong. And it has to do with being self-centered rather than others-centered this way. As we, as we continue to follow that story, God sets about making things right by calling Abraham and making a covenant with him. God promises to make Abraham into a great nation, to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. And God keeps his promises. He grows Abraham's family, and he delivers them from Egypt. And after doing so, he makes a covenant with them. This covenant consists in part of the law, and particularly the Ten Commandments that the law includes. So as Moses is preparing the people to enter into the Promised Land, he kind of recaps their history for them. And he, he describes this giving of the law. In Deuteronomy 4, he says, Now Israel, hear the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord, your God, that I give you. And then he goes on to describe how these commands had been given to them at Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy 9, he says, The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord had proclaimed to you on the mountain 
out of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. So that should be ringing some bells as we think back about the passage in 2 Corinthians that we're reading here. The end of Deuteronomy, which is consistent with ancient covenant treaties, consists of a series of blessings and curses for either keeping or breaking covenant. Deuteronomy anticipates that the people would eventually break covenant, that they'd turn away from God and worship idols. And when people turn from God and worship graven images, oppression of God's true images in the world, other human beings, always accompanies that. Idolatry and injustice always go together in the Old Testament. But even still, Deuteronomy, knowing that the people would do this, holds out hope that there would come a day when things would be made right. Okay, this can be thought of as an eschatological hope. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses says that when the blessings and curses of the covenant had come upon them, God would bring them back from exile. He adds, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. All right, so we've seen what's wrong. Sin is being curved in on ourselves. We've seen God take a step to make it right, making a covenant with his people, which included a law to follow. But something goes wrong. They don't follow it. They break covenant. They go into exile. They choose death rather than life. And so that pushes this restoration, this hope for restoration, back into the age to come. Forward, I should say, into the age to come. The prophet Jeremiah draws heavily on the book of Deuteronomy in his own prophecies. If you're going to read Jeremiah, you should always read Deuteronomy first because the link between the two is so strong. And he understands that what's happening to the people at his time is that the fulfillment of the Deuteronomic curses are, are coming about because of the people's idolatry and because of the people's injustice. It's a gloomy book. His prophecies, his warnings are not heeded. And as a result of that, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed and the people go into exile. But like Deuteronomy, Jeremiah lays out this eschatological hope for a new covenant that would be different from the old one, which was written on tablets of stone. So that's what we read in our call to worship this morning. In Jeremiah 31, it says, The days are coming, <clears throat> declares the Lord. That's eschatological language. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. All right, so that should be ringing more bells with our passage. Um, in these eschatological promises, we see the promise of a new covenant in which God's law would be written not on tablets of stone, but on people's hearts. The prophet Ezekiel makes a similar eschatological promise. God says, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. 
I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. So if that passage doesn't directly ring bells, it should at least kind of, we should at least hear the echoes. A heart of flesh is being given in place of a heart of stone. And the spirit is being given to empower people to keep God's law. Now, it should be noted briefly here that, that there's nothing wrong with the law or the covenant itself here, despite the fact that it didn't work. As Paul says in Romans 7, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Jesus and other Jews at his time understood that the law could be boiled down to two basic principles, love God and love your neighbor. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, that love is in keeping with this other-centered nature of these four ordered relationships that we've talked about. So the problem wasn't the law or the covenant itself. The problem was sin. The problem was being curved in on ourselves rather than oriented toward God and others. It was that self-centered orientation, that mind set on the flesh, as Paul said, that prevented us from following the law, that prevented us from loving God and loving neighbor. So as Paul says in Romans 7, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. All right, so that's what marks the present evil age. That's what marks the old covenant, written on tablets of stone, is that it wasn't empowered by the Spirit, and so it brought death. All of this is the story that Paul is drawing on as he gets to our passage. Okay, it's, it's this story with his transformed eschatology and how these different prophecies that we've read fit, that fit into it. That's what he's drawing on as he faces this challenge from the super apostles. All right, so let's begin to draw that all together. In 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, he starts, You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are qualified from ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our qualifications are from God, who has qualified us as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So what happens when this self-centered, curved in on itself, mindset on the flesh, encounters the tablets of stone, the Old Covenant? A couple of things happen. First, that orientation is exposed for what it is. Okay? The law is about other-centered love and says, don't covet. But the curved in self does covet, and when it encounters the law, it recognizes, that this, it recognizes that that is wrong, that it is sinful. So it's exposed for the sinful being that it is. It's just exposed for being disordered in its relationships. But there's a second thing that happens too. And I think this is relevant to what Paul is saying here. The curved in self finds ways to use the law in a self-centered way. In a self-asserting way. It finds ways to start keeping the law, not out of that other-centered 
self-giving love for God and others, but to be better than the neighbor, to boast because of ways that it had kept that law. And so this is what happened with Torah observance for Paul before he became a Christian. He used to boast in his qualifications in ways that he had kept the law. In Philippians 3, he talks about this. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And what Paul has done, by mixing his metaphors between the ink penned letters of commendation and the tablets of stone, is he's connected the attitudes and the actions of the super-apostles with the present evil age. And he's contrasted that with what the ministry of the age to come, the ministry of the Spirit, should look like. So Paul links the super-apostles to the present evil age by linking those letters of commendation, written with ink, to the tablets of stone of the Old Covenant. Let's look at the passage again. In the Old Covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone. In the New Covenant, it's written on human hearts. In the New Covenant, it's the spirit that indwells and empowers believers. But what Paul does is he contrasts that with letters of commendation that are written in ink. He's linking the tablets of stone with the letters of commendation. So Paul and his co-workers, as they participate in Christ through the eschatological spirit, they're ministers of the new covenant. The present evil age is characterized by the old covenant, by flesh, by sin, by death. And because of our curved-in-on-ourselves orientation, the letter kills. It kills because it exposes that orientation, but also because it perpetuates it by becoming a source of boasting in ourselves. This is the second way that the super-apostles, with their self-promoting letters of commendation, are linked to the death of the present evil age. Their boasting in themselves is the kind of curved-in-on-ourselves orientation that is the source of sin, that is the source of death. The letter kills. And so by drawing this contrast between his own other-centered self-giving ministry with the self-centered, self-asserting ministry of the super-apostles, Paul is also calling the Corinthians to a new way of being. He's calling to them to be what they are as participants in the age to come, brought about in their lives by the Spirit of God, to leave the ways of this present evil age behind. Flesh, <clears throat> old covenant, sin and death, with the self-centered boasting and self-promotion that it involves, belong to the old age. Spirit, new covenant, faithful obedience, other-centered self-giving love, and resurrection life belong to the new age, the age to come. The Spirit gives life. But membership in this coming age requires dying to that fleshly, curved-in-on-ourselves way of life. As we are united to Christ in His death, it requires putting aside our boasting, putting aside our letters of commendation, so that we can participate in His other-centered resurrection life. We join the age to come by orienting ourselves towards Christ through the Spirit. So if we look back at these passages we've read, after Paul lists his reasons, his former reasons for confidence in the flesh, 
He continues on to say, but these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness, a righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. My aim is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, to be like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And similarly, after describing the mindset on the flesh in Romans 8, he says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though the body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So what I would leave us with this morning is this. What is the letter for us? What might our letters of commendation be? What are the things apart from Christ that we boast in, that we put stock in, that we find our identity or our value in? How do we compare ourselves against others based on things that have to do with us rather than who Jesus is? The way from a curved in on ourselves orientation to rightly ordered relationships, the way from self-centered self-promotion to others-centered self-giving love, the way from the old covenant to the new, from the present evil age to the age to come, the way from flesh to spirit, from death to resurrection life as God's resurrection people begins with laying down our ink-penned letters of commendation, looking away from ourselves and toward Jesus. And that's where Paul is going to go next week. But for now, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your, the, the way that you seek to free us from the death that comes from being curved in on ourselves. To liberate us into the kinds of others-centered, well-ordered relationships that you desire for us, that you created us for. I pray now that by your spirit, you would fill us, you would transform us, that you would bring about your resurrection life in us and help us to be your people in the world.